Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do. We, the people, are free. Well, hi there. We welcome you to the Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Hello, Colonel Eitzmo. Well, Brian, it's good to be with you again. Well, uh, things just keep getting more interesting in terms of current events and some of the things happening around us. Uh, particularly in the last week, since the last time we visited, we have seen a very organized effort to either tear down or deface a number of historical statues and monuments. And I would like to get your take on, on what we are seeing and, uh, and, and your assessment of what does this portend when a people want to erase their history? You talk about this being a very interesting time, and there is a saying in China, may you live in interesting times. And interestingly, that is used as a curse. <laughs> Living in interesting times is not considered a blessing in China. And, of course, they value stability. But, yes, they are interesting in many ways. What we've got going here is no longer a protest. What we've got going here is a mob. A mob, much like the French Revolution, and you never know which direction the mob is going to turn against next. And first of all, they take Robespierre and behead him. And he says, maybe it's the other way around. He says, Danton will follow me. And sure enough, a little later, they turn on him and decide he isn't radical enough. And it, you just don't know which way this mob is going to turn. One of the things we're seeing is with this supposedly independent nation that's been created, CHOP, in Seattle, well, apparently they're going to close that down now. And what's been happening is they've been claiming to be an independent country, and Trump has said that he would come in if they wanted him to, and that he would close this down, the city has resisted that because they're basically in sympathy with the mob. But at any rate, under Article 4 of the Constitution, the president can send in troops to the state, first of all, to repel a foreign invasion or to quell a domestic insurrection. But he can do so for a domestic insurrection only at the request of the legislature or the governor. And, of course, they're not about to do so because they wouldn't want to give Trump that satisfaction. And they're in sympathy with the mob, as I said. However, if, in fact, CHOP is a foreign country, an independent nation, as they've been claiming, then any time one of their people sets foot outside CHOP, we could call that a foreign invasion. <laughs> and our troops in, but it looks like that's not going to be necessary. In shock, they've had a couple of shootings over the weekend, one of which resulted in a death, which probably means that this little six-block area of an independent nation, it has the highest murder rate in the world. But anyway, it demonstrates that when the mob takes over, things quickly degenerate, and even the city officials now say they are going to, in their words, dismantle it. And it'd be interesting to see how they get that done. But First of all, they came after the Confederates. And the only thing I'll say on that is that certainly slavery is wrong. Nobody's questioning that today. And we would say further that 
the South is not the only one complicit in slavery, that the slave trade originated from New England, but at any rate, it's a worldwide sin at the time, not just the sin of the South alone, but at any rate, to not see anything valorous or virtuous about some of these people like Robert E. Lee, I say, is just plain wrong. You know, it's interesting that modern liberals are in love with the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans and their so-called enlightened thought. They forget that probably a third to 40 percent of the inhabitants of Athens were slaves and that over half of the inhabitants of Sparta were slaves. But that's a detail they're willing to overlook because they like Greek enlightenment thought. Plato, for example defend slavery, saying that slavery is necessary for freedom. And what he means by this is that a free man, and by the way, in Greece, only free adult males were really considered citizens, and just about everybody else was considered subservient, including women. But at any rate, they he said that a man, if he's going to be a free citizen and have all the responsibilities of citizenship, he's going to need slaves to run his house or his farm property or his business and things like that. So slavery, Plato said, is necessary for freedom. Aristotle said that slavery is the natural order of things. He said that freedom is possible only for those with the power of reason. And Aristotle said reason, or reason is absent in women, undeveloped in children, and inoperative in slaves. And so slaves would be as miserable being free as free men would be being slaves. And yet modern liberals love the thought of Plato and Aristotle, even though their concept of slavery was far, far worse than anything we would have seen in the American South. So Certainly we can condemn slavery, but let's look at some of the good things there as well. But it's gone way beyond that. Now they're talking about Columbus and accusing Columbus of a number of things, genocide and some other things that would be the work of people who came after Columbus, not Columbus himself, bringing in small box disease, but that's a tragedy, but I don't think that you can attach moral blame to it. Nobody knew how disease was spread in those days, and contact between the old world and the new world was inevitable. And whether it had been Aztecs discovering Spain or the Spaniards discovering Mexico, the spread would have taken place. I don't think you can attach moral blame to that. Anyway, so then we're going on to Father Unipero Sierra there in California, Forgetting all of the good this man did, leaving behind a comfortable life in Spain to come over here and live a life of privation, to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who had never heard of him, and yet they're toppling his statue and the cross that he's holding with it. We're now wrapping George Washington's statue in a flag, burning the flag and toppling the statue. Now they are after Ulysses Grant. And Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, who's next? As I say, it's become a mob mentality. And what it comes down to is this, and I think we've said this before, but it's like George Orwell there in 1984 when he has the Ministry of Truth saying, 
who controls the past controls the future, who controls the present controls the past. And this is not just about toppling statues. It's about rewriting history, eliminating real history from people's minds so that they can create a new nation without being encumbered by any of the past baggage that this nation may have had. You know, I was in Ukraine a few years ago and lecturing on constitution reform. All that is kind of on hold in Ukraine right now because of the unrest and other things going on there, although we hope to get started again. But they were taking me through a park near Kiev and came past a couple of huge busts of Lenin and Stalin. And I kind of bristled when I saw those and coded the people who were my hosts, who were very anti-communist, and they said those need to come down. At the time, I kind of agreed. And as I got to think about it afterward, though, I said, no, that's part of history. And those should remain as a reminder of what's wrong in history and what's right in history. You might say that monuments, especially unpopular monuments, are kind of like a voice of protest. They are a statement saying that there was a time when people thought differently from what the politically correct orthodoxy says today. And whether we agree or not, we should at least be aware of what they thought. Anyway, so I'm with you completely on that, Brian. I think this is a terrible trend, and it's gone way, way beyond any kind of protest. And defacing statues and vandalizing things like this has nothing to do with free speech. It is nothing but crime, and it needs to be dealt with accordingly. Well, and as as someone who has read your books and is currently reading books that you have written, um, I really have come to appreciate the value of knowing how we got here from there and, and that history is so essential, including the bad parts. But I can't remember who it was who pointed this out. I saw this saying earlier this week, and it was, um, you can't learn from history if it's been erased. That seemed to make sense. Very true. And another thing that Solomon said, those who will not read have no advantage over those who cannot read. Well said. We will take a very quick break. This is Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. And we'll be back just the other side of these messages. Constitution Classroom. Your host is Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. Colonel, we've been talking about the Fifth Amendment over the last couple of weeks, and we're going to uh, venture a little further into this amendment of the Bill of Rights. Where would you like to begin today? Why don't we read the entire first or Fifth Amendment and then let's focus this time on the self-incrimination clause. Last week, we talked about the double jeopardy clause. There's a lot in this Fifth Amendment. No person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury, except in cases arising in the land or naval forces or in the militia when in actual service in time of war or public danger. 
nor shall any person be subject for the same offense to be twice put in jeopardy of life or limb, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself, nor be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor shall private property be taken for public use without just compensation. As we said last week, we looked at this particular clause about the double jeopardy, and we saw that that should be very simple, and yet you get a bunch of lawyers together, and they can make it complicated. They get paid for making things complicated, of course, but we saw that it isn't just you can't be tried twice for the same offense. It means you can't be tried twice in the same jurisdiction, and if your offense covered two different state lines. You could be charged in more than one state. If your crime violated both a federal statute and a state statute, there is a possibility you could be tried in both federal and state court. And we saw some of the complications here. But now let's look at this phrase, nor shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. And we call that the self-incrimination clause. And when people talk about the Fifth Amendment, that's the phrase they usually think of most. That I'll take the Fifth. And in common parlance, taking the Fifth simply means I'm going to decline to make a statement. I refuse to testify. We've seen there's so much more in the Fifth Amendment than that, but that is a very important part of it. And we might ask where this comes from. Well, a couple of things. For one thing, in Hebrew law, a person was not only not required to incriminate himself, but in some of the extra-biblical Jewish law, he was not even allowed to incriminate himself. And the reason is that the Hebrews had a very strong respect for human life, and they were prohibited from killing, and that included killing yourself. And Testifying against yourself was considered to be a form of self-destruction or suicide. And so this was not only not required in court, it was not even permitted in the Hebrew courts. And of course, they went much further in making sure that the rights of the accused are protected, nor shall any person be put to death except upon the testimony of two or three witnesses. In other words, there has to be corroborating evidence and so on. But that's the first reason. Kind of a respect for human dignity and human life itself, people should not have to participate in their own destruction. But there's another reason, too, and that is that coerced confessions can be unreliable. For example, you put somebody under torture and ask the person, did you commit this crime over and over again? And eventually the person may well confess and say, yes, I did, not because he did, but to end the torture. And so coerced confessions may be unreliable. In many cases, they are. Now, obviously, when we think about a coerced confession, we can think about cases where there is actual force being used to torture and the like. There is one case, for example, where a policeman or a deputy held a shotgun to a defendant's head while he was on the ground, 
and told him to confess or he was going to blow his head off. And he confessed, of course, but that was obviously held to be coerced. But then we find other forms of coercion. For example, let's say that rather than actually forcing a person in the sense of torture, you just simply wear the person down. We have one case, for example, where a person is suspected of a serious crime and he is in interrogation for something like 30 plus hours being interrogated continuously without breaks. The police officers interrogating him did so in teams and they would in turn relieve each other, but he had no team to hand off to. He was in there the whole time. And finally, with lack of food, lack of sleep, constant pressure, finally he confessed. And court said that that was not a voluntary confession and for that reason it is suspect or you'll say that they use tactics that are designed to get a person to confess one is what we call the mutt and jeff tactic you know mutt the bad cop and jeff the good cop they mutt comes in to talk to this guy and is really really loud and rude and threatening to him and finally just says, okay, I've had enough of your lies. I'm not going to put up with any more of this. We're, we're going to put you in 99 years in the electric chair and I'm through with you. And walks out and slams the door. And then in walks officer Jeff and Jeff smiles, nice guy. Something like, well, was not rough on you. I'm sorry about that. He tends to be that way. You know, he means well, but he gets awfully rough sometimes. You know, I think part of it is he just simply doesn't like you. I don't know why. I mean, I kind of like him. He seemed like a nice guy to me. He kind of reminded me of my own son. And I'd like to help you. Now, I'll tell you what I can do. I know the DA pretty well. And if you'll come clean with me, I'll intercede with the DA and see if I can get him to cut you a break here. Not only that, but here's what else I can do. is I can make sure you don't ever have to talk to Mutt again. And by this time, he's convinced that Jeff is his only friend, and he confesses. Is that a violation? Or another way they'll sometimes do it is they'll say there's several suspects of a crime. They'll have them in separate rooms, and then they'll say to one, you know, your friend, your compatriot over there, you know, he just confessed, but he didn't just confess. He says that you were the one that was really the mastermind of the whole thing. You were behind it all and that he was just along for the ride. Oh, no, that's not true. He was, he was the mastermind. I was just, I just drove the vehicle. That's all. And <laughs> anyway, so things like that, that is this kind of thing coercion? Well, they take those on a case by case basis. They say that in situations like that, that we will just have to assess it one by one to determine whether, despite police tactics, this was a matter of the will until we get to the Supreme Court's decision of Miranda versus Arizona. And there we're going to see a real game changer in this whole area. Let's talk about that in the next session. 
and we'll maybe assess a little bit whether we think Miranda was a good rule or a bad rule. I guess that's going to depend largely on whether or not you're the person sitting there in the interrogation room being questioned, right? Or whether or not you're the police officer or maybe whether you're the crime victim who would like to see the criminal come to justice. Excellent point. All right, we'll pick up our conversation just the other side of this break. Again, you are listening to Constitution Classroom on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. We'll have show notes with a link to the Foundation for Moral Law. That is where you will find also more information on our host, Colonel John Eidsmo. We'll be back right after this. Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We are talking about uh, more of the aspects of the Fifth Amendment, particularly your right against self-incrimination. And Colonel, you mentioned you're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking the Miranda decision for us. Yes, case of Miranda versus Arizona. Miranda had been a petty criminal both before and after all of this happened. And like I said, sometimes if you want to really be famous in this area, become a criminal and get your name on a case that gets up to the Supreme Court. And now everybody knows Miranda because of the Miranda warning. Well, in the Miranda case, we had a similar situation. It was not where there was any actual torture or deprivation or anything like that. But it was a case where he was not advised of his rights to have a lawyer and so on. And anyway, so in this case, Justice Brennan went through a lengthy history of the self-incrimination clause and of the various police tactics that were sometimes used to get their confessions out of people. And anyway, he came to the conclusion then that because of the inequality of the people here, the suspected criminal, who at this point very possibly does not have an attorney with him versus the police officers who are trained in this area and have all kinds of resources available. He said that we cannot allow coerced confession. And any confession is going to be considered a coerced confession and involuntary and therefore inadmissible unless we have taken steps to remove the coercion. And the step to remove the coercion, he said, unless you can suggest a better alternative, but he said the step to remove the coercion will be to make sure that the defendant is advised of these following rights. And police officers regularly advise people of these rights. We call them the Miranda warnings. And those are, number one, that you have a right to remain silent, Number two, you are entitled to know that anything you use against you can, or anything you say can be used against you in a court of law. Number three, you have a right to an attorney. And number four, if you cannot afford an attorney, 
the state will provide one for you at no expense to you. And unless a defendant has been advised of these rights, his confession will be considered involuntary, and therefore it will not be admissible in court. Now, you recall a few weeks ago, we were talking about the exclusionary rule as it applied to the Fourth Amendment and search and seizure, that evidence that is seized in violation of the Fourth Amendment, like, for example, without a warrant or without probable cause, cannot be used in court because otherwise there'd be no incentive for officers to respect the law. Well, the same is the case here. And we're saying that confessions that are obtained in violation of the requirement that the Miranda warning be given may not be used in court. And therefore, an officer that gets a confession but fails to give the Miranda warnings is not going to be considered the hero who broke this case. He's going to be considered the buffoon who blew the case by not giving the warnings. And now it's interesting to see the way these warnings are given. That the officer will customarily take out a card out of his wallet and he will read those warnings one by one. And people wonder, why do officers have to do that? Are they stupid? Do they just simply, are they unable to remember this? No, there's a reason for this, and that is for credibility in court. Let me explain what I mean by that. Let's say that a police officer pulls over somebody and tells him orally the Miranda warnings. And then let's say three years later, the case comes up in court And the defense attorney is questioning whether he was given the Miranda warnings in the proper form. Well, okay, now, officer, you say you gave the Miranda warnings. Well, what did you say to the defendant? Well, I I, I gave him those four warnings. Okay, but exactly how did you give it? What what was the first thing you told him? Well, I said he, he has a right to remain silent. Was that what you said? Well, most of it. Could you have said... You don't have to say anything. Well, I might have said that. Okay, and then what did you say? Well, then I said that uh, anything you say can be used against you in court. You say could be used. I think so. Did you say must be used? I might have said must be used. You say might be used. Might be used. Did you say anything incriminating could be used? Don't think I said anything incriminating, but that was three and a half years ago. I don't remember my exact words. And what do you say about an attorney? Well, I said he's entitled to an attorney. Okay. Did you say he's entitled to one at state expense? I think I said that. And this was three and a half years ago. How many people have you given the warnings to since that time, officer? Well, probably several thousand. And you remember specifically what you told this man three and a half years ago? Well, uh, it's a little hazy, but fairly well. But on the other hand, if he can simply say, I read the warnings off this card. I read them word for word. This is my practice. Every time I pull somebody over, I read from that card word for word. I never deviate from that practice. If I had deviated from that practice this time, I would remember, and I know I didn't deviate at this time. Now, that is credible. And so the main reason they read these warnings off the card is 
partly to make sure that they all get read, but also so they can say credibly in court that the defendant was advised of the Miranda warning. And they have to be pretty close to what the warnings say. You can change the words. You could probably say might be used in court rather than will be used in court. But you have to remember there, that even there, there can be some confusion. If the person says, well, I wasn't really that drunk, I don't think. I, I only had five beers. He may think that's an exculpatory statement that clears it. In fact, that may be incriminatory. Or he says, well, I didn't pull the trigger. I just drove the getaway car. He may think that that's exculpatory when, in fact, it could be incriminating. Courts have said that if you don't mention that he's entitled to an attorney at state expense if he cannot afford one, if you don't mention that, and it turns out that he could afford an attorney, then failure to mention that would not mean the evidence couldn't be used against you. But other than that, they have to be pretty thorough about it. And it doesn't matter whether the defendant knew his rights or not. In fact, police officers sometimes say that a lot of the criminal elements that they will talk to as they read them, the Miranda warnings, they'll just simply, yeah, yeah, I know, I have a right to remain silent. Anything I say can be used against me. I have a right to... <laughs> and many of them seem to know them just as well as the officer does. But you could, under Miranda, take the top criminal defense attorney in the nation. You could have the chief justice of the Supreme Court pulled over. And if you don't give him the Miranda warning. Anything he says can't be used against you in court. That's how ironclad that is. Now, there is an exception to it. And the exception is this applies only when somebody is in custodial interrogation. In other words, they have to be in custody. And they have to be subject to interrogation. After our break, I'll explain a little more what custodial interrogation means. And then we have another question here, too, and that is, whether or not this interferes with law enforcement, and we'll talk a little bit about that in the next hour or two, but just bear in mind that the Miranda warning is there to make sure that police officers do respect the Fifth Amendment, but it is an extension to the Fifth Amendment. Nothing in the Fifth Amendment says that evidence or statements made in violation of this amendment are not admissible in court. That is something that the courts have added. And we might note also that this was added in the Miranda decision, which was a 5-4 Supreme Court decision. It wasn't unanimous by any means. And we might notice also that in the English-speaking world in general, a lot of countries that basically hold to our Anglo system of law don't follow the Miranda principle. And so there are reasons to say that this is open to question. It sounds like there there may actually be cases where people have invoked that uh, right to remain silent where they really didn't need to, like if they're not in, uh, you know, uh, a custodial situation. Mm-hmm. All right, Colonel, we, we will talk about that. OK, we'll hit the pause button here for, for our discussion for the moment. We will be back with more on Constitution Classroom with Colonel John Eitzmo from the Foundation for Moral Law right after these messages.
Welcome back. This is Constitution Classroom with your host, Colonel John Eidsmo from the Foundation for Moral Law. We are talking about the Fifth Amendment, particularly your right uh, to be free from self-incrimination. And Colonel, uh, we were we were just talking about uh, taking the Fifth Amendment, and you mentioned that it doesn't really apply. You can't really take the Fifth unless you are undergoing custodial interrogation. Help us understand that better. Okay. Officers don't have to give the Miranda warning unless they have somebody in custodial interrogation. Now, custody means, you think, first of all, it means jail. But not always. There are other circumstances of custody. Let's say if they have you handcuffed in the back of the police car or something like that, that could be considered in custody. We have a case involving a young man whose name was Bostic, and he had boarded a commercial bus, and police officers suspected him of possessing drugs. They came on board the bus, and anyway, they asked if they could look through his backpack, which he had stored above him there in the compartment of the bus there, and he said they they could. They asked him some questions. Anyway, and so the question was, had he voluntarily consented? And the question for that is, was he in custody? They asked him whether he was in custody. The question was, did he feel like he was free to leave under the circumstance? In fact, not just did he feel that he was free to leave, but would a reasonable person under the circumstances feel free to leave? Now, nobody told him he couldn't leave. And nobody told him that he had to consent. He could have said, I'm leaving, got off the bus. He could have said, no, I don't consent. You can't go through my backpack. But when you have police officers towering over you as you're sitting in a seat on the bus there, that could be considered intimidating. In this case, as I recall, they said that he'd, a reasonable person in those circumstances would feel free to leave. I had a case myself, and this involved, well, it's kind of a funny story. It was up in northern Minnesota, and it involved a couple of guys, decent kids mostly. They'd gotten little scrapes once in a while, but they had gotten, they'd gone to a dance, met a couple of girls at the dance, and one of them, they kind of decided they'd pair up, and one of them would take one girl home, and the other one would take the other girl home in, in her car. And anyway, so they, the one gave the other the keys to his car. Now, at this time, the other, neither of them had, had a lot to drink. But as the evening went on, the other one had a great deal to drink. And then, as they're driving back home, my client, driving the girl's car, is following his friend who's driving his car with the other girl. And the friend, who is quite drunk, has an accident. And so they're questioning my client about this. And whether or not he is guilty of allowing a intoxicated person to use his vehicle. Now, I thought we had a defense on this, if we had to go to court on the issue itself, that the friend was not intoxicated when he gave him the key. The law, as I saw it, did not put upon him an affirmative duty to take the keys back when the friend became intoxicated. But at any rate, they have my client in the back of the police car, and they're asking him questions about whether he knew the guy was intoxicated, how much the guy had, had to drink, things like that. They had not advised him of his Miranda warnings. And so at a hearing, we have moved, we've moved to have all of his statements 
suppressed and not admitted because he had not been advised of his Miranda warning. And the question is, did he have to be? Was he in custody? And so we're both asking questions of the officer, the prosecutor and I are both asking questions of the officer. I think the prosecutor kind of felt that the case was going against him, and so he kind of took a gamble, and he just asked the officer, well, was the defendant free to leave the vehicle? The officer said, sure, as soon as he finished making a statement. Well, right there, we had pretty well established that he was in custody. It was not voluntary, and therefore, the judge ruled that the Miranda warnings did apply, and since he hadn't given them, that his statement couldn't be used, and as a result, the charge was dismissed. But anyway, that's the kind of issue you get into in, interrogate, in voluntary interrogation. Now, interrogation, normally you'd say interrogation means asking questions. We actually define that even a little more narrowly, and that is if you are making a statement to a suspect that is designed and likely to elicit an incriminating response. And we had a case in Iowa of a man who had murdered a young girl and hit her body out in the field, and this is not too long before Christmas, and they were taking him from, as I recall, Davenport to Des Moines, maybe the other way around. And as they are driving, and he's in the back seat, the officer turns to the defendant and said, I'm not asking you any questions, but I just want you to observe something. I want you to observe that it's getting toward nightfall. It is snowing. The snow is getting deeper. And it is close to Christmas time. And if this body is not found at this time. It'll probably be so covered with snow that nobody will find it until spring. And I just think that these parents are entitled to a Christian burial to their little girl who was taken away from them on Christmas Eve. And the defendants just said, you're right. You're right. I'll tell you where the body is. Wow. They hadn't asked him any questions. But the court, in a divided vote, said that that Christian burial speech, as it was termed in criminal law circles, that speech was likely to and intended to elicit an incriminating response and did so. And therefore, they said that it was procured in violation of Miranda. Wow. Well, now we have the question, does Miranda interfere with law enforcement? And I'll tell you what, I, when I was in law school, this, I was in law school right at the time the Miranda decision came out or just, just after it, I should say. And a couple of students, a couple of years ahead of me, had done a study, and they saw that the ratio of convictions or of prosecutions, charges filed to convictions, was about the same after the Miranda warnings as it was before. And therefore, they concluded that it had not had any negative effect on law enforcement. Well, I raised the question, Yes, but what about cases where charges aren't even filed because without the incriminated evidence, you don't have enough evidence to bring charges? Well, I decided I'd do some independent research myself. So in my last year of law school, I did an independent research on the topic. What, how, what is the relationship between charges being filed or, or a complaint being filed, charges being filed, and a conviction? And... I did find in my study that there were many cases where 
because they didn't have the evidence that no charges were being filed. And I remember I'd asked, I sent out a questionnaire to police chiefs, to prosecutors, and to county sheriffs. I found that the prosecutors mostly thought that Miranda was okay. Police chiefs were about evenly divided. County sheriffs were overwhelmingly against the decision. That was the late 60s. That might have changed by now. But I remember what one in particular said. He said, it's not so much the evidence that we get here when about, about this particular crime, it's all the other things that a suspect might tell us when we have him in custody. For example, we bring him in and he may deny committing the crime that we're asking him about, but then we might ask him about all other kinds of crimes in the area. And he might give us all kinds of valuable information. What about that holdup over there at Joe's bar? Oh, Joe Smith, he's the one that can tell you about that. Or what about the break into the gas station? Spike, Spike Lee, he's, or Spike Jones, he's the guy you need to talk to there. He can give you the information. In other words, all those tidbits about other cases, all those leads that they were getting. So that's what has dried up. Now, you give a person the Miranda warning, and he says, well, maybe I better talk to an attorney. The attorney, the first thing the attorney says is don't say anything. And so we are deprived of all that information. So I'd have to say, I think Miranda has had a negative effect. And what I would say the law should be instead is if the Miranda warnings are not given, then the question should be, was the confession voluntary? Today, the way it works is we have a conclusive presumption that the confession was involuntary if the warnings were not given. I would say the burden then is on maybe on the prosecution to prove by preponderance of evidence that even though there were no warnings, the defendant still knew his rights and voluntarily waived it's been a fascinating journey through the, the Fifth Amendment. Um, I'd like to refer people to the, the Foundation for Moral Law. Where can they find it online? Morallaw.org. M-O-R-A-L-L-A-W-2-L-Z.org. Excellent. And I look forward to visiting with you next week.